What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Abiba Chomsky. She's a professor of history and coordinator of Latin American Studies at Salem State University. She is the author of many books, including one of my favorites right now, Organizing for Power, Building the 21st Century Labor Movement in Boston. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, when we think of movements, you know, most people think of the labor movement as something that's already happened, that it's been done. You know, we have the weekend, you know, we, we work eight hours, so the work is done. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the struggles of our labor movement in the 21st century. Yeah, it's interesting when you said we think of the labor movement as something that's done. You talked about the successes of the labor movement, but I think that a lot of people actually feel like the labor movement is done because it's failed. Um, it's over. I'm, I'm not saying that that's true, but that I think a lot of people feel that. Like the labor movement was good in gaining rights for certain groups of workers in the middle of the 20th century, but now we're in a new world and many of the gains of the, that the labor movement one have actually been lost. Um, even things like, you know, you said now we have the weekend, now we have the minimum wage, um, now we don't have child labor. Those aren't completely true for a lot of workers. There is no such thing as a weekend or a 40-hour week or benefits. The federal minimum wage hasn't been raised in so many years that um, you know people earning the minimum wage earn way under the poverty line and. Even in Massachusetts, which has a much higher minimum wage where I live, the cost of living is so high uh, in the Boston area. A minimum wage worker can't afford to live in Boston. So the labor movement has lost a lot of power with the changing economy because many of the sectors that were most heavily unionized, manufacturing um, in particular, have severely declined in recent years. So the labor movement has gone from representing not quite half under it's never represented more than half of workers in the United States, but coming close up there to half um, to representing today only seven percent of workers. So that means that only seven percent of workers are covered by a union contract and have access to the benefits that unionization has brought um, there's been a real informalization of the U.S. economy, a move into sort of a gig economy, 
Um, many workers who aren't even covered by labor law, they're forced to work as independent contractors, which means um, that they aren't even covered by the protections of labor law. There's whole sectors like agricultural workers that are filled with guest workers, with um, undocumented immigrants, with people who really have no access. They don't have access to union protections, but they don't have access to the protections that the labor movement won for all workers, things like health and safety conditions, minimum wage, etc. I'm so delighted that you brought that up. And, and part of it is because I think it's the stories that we are told and the stories that we tell others co-create the way we see our world. You know, in the United States, we had President Trump for several years talking about making America great again. But I wonder, you know, what was what was great about it was the exploitation, the extreme inequality, you know, for some people that, that was great. And for Latin Americans who are forced to dis be displaced by war, by invasion, um, you know, the, there is really very, di very little difference between a Trump administration and a Biden administration. Can we talk a little bit about the connections between poverty and the policies, you know, of invasion that, you know, make workers invisible in their own countries and make workers disposable in countries like Latin America, like El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, um, you know, the, the global south. So I think one of the places where we've seen a lot of consistency um Two places where we've seen a lot of consistency between um, Democratic and Republican administrations, um, certainly from the late 20th century on. One has been in economic policy, and the other has been in foreign policy. So in terms of economic policy, uh, you know, the triumph of neoliberalism, which we can trace back perhaps as far as the Nixon administration, certainly as far as the Reagan administration, the 1970s, 1980s. Um, that is the idea that the state should not be providing protections to its citizens. Rather, it should be providing protections to its corporations, that the goal of the state is to promote corporate profits, um, not to promote social welfare of human beings. Um, I would call that the kind of essence of the neoliberal ideology. And we've really seen that um, both Democrats and Republicans have promoted this idea of the state. Um, the Clinton administration, for example, was the greatest purveyor of neoliberal ideology. Um, this complete dismantling of the public welfare system, the end of welfare as we know it. Um, as he bragged, free trade, or what goes by the name of free trade, that is the idea that the government should be helping corporations to close down their factories in the United States in order to be able to exploit workers and environments and countries in the third world where through compliant governments that are supported by the United States um, because they can make more profits there. That is the gains that were won in part by the labor movement um, and other 
movements in the United States made it have made it more expensive for companies to do business here. Um, they can't exploit people. They can't exploit the natural environment. They can't pollute as much as they can um, in, say, Central America. So the promotion of what they call free trade is really the imposition. And here we um, are connecting neoliberalism, uh, economic policy to foreign policy to impose U.S. power on other countries, Central America, Mexico, Central America, in ways that are beneficial to U.S. corporations. So neoliberalism at home, neoliberalism abroad, and abroad, it's in another side of it at home, is enforced by violence, the growth of the carceral state, that is, the um, instead of creating social justice for marginalized populations, you just incarcerate marginalized populations in the United States. Um, You know, we don't like to think of the term police state to refer to the United States, but for many communities of color, this is a police state. Their their main interaction with the state is through its carceral um, face. but also violently imposing in places like Central America the economic model that the United States wants, which is an economic model that helps corporations to make more profits by ensuring that governments in Central America are going to place the interests of corporate profits over the interests of their own populations. And in Central America, this has been imposed by direct violence, and again, by Democrats and Republicans uh, you know, we generally associate Ronald Reagan in the 1980s with the Central American wars, um, the support for right-wing military governments, the absolute commitment to the overthrow of Nicaragua's revolution. Um, and it's true that there were some congressional Democrats who tried in small ways to mitigate that. But, you know, it was the Obama administration and his Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who orchestrated and supported the most recent military coup in Honduras in 2009, um, and very, very explicitly and directly because the elected president was threatening this neoliberal model, was trying to use the, the power of the state to actually protect its citizens from foreign corporations And the coup completely reversed that Honduras is open for business. Um, And and that was the Obama administration um, that oversaw that process. But I want to point out uh, the the intersection, the the connection between poverty, between displacement, between this aggression that is constant for some people that creates a burgeoning movement, you know, that creates, um, in many ways, it's also the, the fuel that moves us to, to take action despite the challenges. So can we talk about what it means to be organizing for power, what it means to create a movement for justice in the 21st century, aware of the threats and the, and the challenges we face? Mm-hmm. So let me start by talking about um, Boston and and the book and and our work looking at um, workers' movements and the labor movement in Boston. And um, I, I use those two terms very deliberately because when when we talk about the labor movement, we're generally talking about um, the AFL-CIO, 
the main labor federation organized labor as it's developed historically and its institutions, its longstanding institutions um, in the United States. And then there are workers' movements outside of the formal union movement. And a lot of what the book is about is seeing how these two movements um, under these changing economic circumstances of neoliberalism and the loss of power of the organized labor movement um, and the loss of the sort of structural foundations of the labor movement's power, how that's brought about changes in the labor movement um, and some of these what's sometimes called alt-labor, that is workers' movements outside of the official labor movement. One of the chapters that I wrote in the book is a history of black worker mobilization in Boston and looking at just how much the history of black worker organizing in Boston has taken place outside the official labor movement um, because people of color were excluded from the AFL-CIO. Um, many of the strongest unions were focused very much on protecting the interests of their members who were white people, who were the descendants of Europeans who had founded those unions. Um, and this was particularly true in, more true in Boston, I would say, than in some other places uh, where we have the development of a more multiracial working class, manufacturing working class. In Boston, there was much less heavy industry and a much stronger craft union, um, building trades tradition, much which were much more came out of the AFL rather than the CIO. Um, the CIO emerged in the early 20th century in the 1930s um, as a kind of alternative, an industrial, much more um, interested in organizing immigrant workers, workers of color, um, industrial union, as opposed to the more exclusive craft tradition of the AFL. And then after World War II, the two join. But Boston was had a much more of an AFL tradition um, because of the lack of heavy industry here. So Boston's black population was mostly excluded from the union movement and has a long history of this kind of alt-labor type of organizing, that is, worker organizing um, for access to the basic rights of citizenship, for access to jobs, for access to education, for access to schools, um, for access to housing, um, working class issues, but that are being fought outside of the union movement. In the contemporary era, a lot of that alt-labor mobilization is taking place in immigrant communities because so many immigrant workers work under these kinds of informal conditions that I was talking to you about earlier and are not represented by the labor movement. Now, the AFL-CIO has a long history of opposing immigration, of seeing immigration as a threat to the rights of American workers, as they defined them. And it wasn't until the 1990s that the AFL-CIO started to sort of wake up from its long slumber and say, hey, if we want to survive, um, we have to look at who the working class is now. And it's not just uh, white manufacturing workers. Um, 
we need to organize the working class as it exists now. Otherwise, our, our union movement is disappearing. So at the same time that you see the growth of things like worker centers, immigrant communities looking for ways to organize around working class issues, whether they're immigrant rights, rights on the job, um, housing rights, rights to status, legal status in the United States, or even workplace rights like um, right uh, to anti-discrimination, rights to a a safe working place, um, right to overtime pay um, outside of the union movement. And then you see the union movement opening much more to uh, thinking about different kinds of worker organizing and supporting the workers, not the workers who have let's see, how can I say this? Um, So it's recognizing a much more diverse, multicultural, multiracial working class as the constituency of the union movement. So we see this really clear change in the 1990s, where there's new leadership elected in the AFL-CIO, and um, they make a real commitment to organizing the unorganized in sectors where the union movement has traditionally been very weak, uh, in like in lower ends of the service economy, like Justice for Janitors campaign, for example, uh, and and so this sort of coming together of worker organizing outside of the union movement and the union movement, uh, the long-term union movement, uh, coming to be much more interested in community and progressive organizing rather than just defending the rights of its existing members. So when we think about the challenge we face today, I think, as a labor movement is not just to protect the jobs locally, but also to imagine a labor movement beyond borders. You know, when we think of mm-hmm. workers organizing in El Salvador or workers organizing in Venezuela or workers, you know, in other parts of the world who want similar ideals, you know, a right to have a family, to have wages that don't, <laughs> we call them hunger wages, you know, in Latin America because mm-hmm. they barely... Mm-hmm you know, feed your family. So how do we create those links um, when we have, you know, when we have structures where, as you point out, sometimes the leadership are part of the problem? You know, the United States also has a history of radical unionism, um, maybe not that different from some of the radical unions in El Salvador. Um, But what happened in the United States is that through a series of red scares, repression, raids, um, the most conservative wing of the union movement is what came to predominate. So unions like the IWW, um, even the CIO in its radical days, many communist-led unions in the United States, um, were all either crushed or they, like the CIO, were drawn into what became the sort of grand bargain of the mid-20th century. And that bargain was that the unions would abandon their more radical claims for social change um, and would enter into a kind of a pact with the U.S. government, being that um, they are supporting U.S. foreign policy, and especially anti-communism, Um, And with the employers, that they would stop trying to challenge the capitalist system or seek power in the workplace um, and instead sort of 
bargain away worker control in exchange for high wages, high consumption, and this sort of private benefit plans. Um, so you see the union movement in the United States supporting the U.S. war in Vietnam, and this is part of its division from the from the left in the United States as well, from the social movements that were opposing U.S. foreign policy, opposing the war. Um, the AFL-CIO supported the U.S. wars in Central America, um, although by the 1980s you're starting to see many unions within the AFL-CIO objecting to this position. But I think it's really the issue of free trade, um, and especially around the Clinton administration. Again, the 1990s is a sort of transformational decade for the official U.S. labor movement when you see the AFL-CIO itself, the officialdom of the AFL-CIO starting to recognize, hey, this foreign policy of crushing radical movements all around the world in the name of anti-communism is not in our interest as American workers. Yeah, we may get cheap products and get to consume a lot, but it's about transforming, transferring our jobs out of the country that is, our interests are really with the workers in these countries, not in the interest of exploiting those workers as much as possible so that our employers can make more profits by moving abroad. So I think the issue of free trade um, really had a radicalizing effect on the unions and the fact that, on the FLCIO, I should say, you know, it's kind of a broad umbrella, the FLCIO and uh there's definitely some kind of entrenched bureaucracies there, too. But certainly there's been a lot more space since the 1990s um, for recognition of common ground with immigrant workers, with workers in other countries, with a, a critique of capitalism and the way that it, um, when given a free hand, is not in the interest of workers either at home or abroad. What inspires you to not only trust that we can create movements that are vibrant with community and, uh, and you know, intentional about our movement towards justice, and, um, and, and how do you keep yourself motivated on those days when things seem really dark and hard to, to move? That's a good question. Um, I mean, things are really dark and hard to move, but in a way, I guess I would say that's what inspires me. <laughs> um, I mean, I think right now, just how awful the pandemic has been actually has opened some doors, I think, in the United States for consciousness raising. That is the concept of essential workers and who are essential workers, who are the workers whose work is really essential to keeping our daily lives going. Um, that's something that's been visibilized in the pandemic. Um, structural inequality in the United States has been invisibilized by the pandemic more than it has been in generations. That is, it's been there, but visibilized to those on the top, um, racial inequalities, uh, inequalities in who has been exposed to COVID and who has suffered from COVID, um, inequalities in who has had access to the vaccine. All of those things are on the front pages of the paper every day. So I think there's been a lot of consciousness 
raised during this process of the pandemic. Um, and we've also seen who has profited from the pandemic. That is, it really is a very propitious moment to be talking about what's wrong with capitalism. Um, I think a lot of people are open to seeing that right now. Um, and the other issue that brings me optimism, even though it's not doesn't necessarily seem very optimistic, is climate change. That I is I think that climate change too, because of the complete disastrousness of what it's bringing to us, also is opening doors for consciousness raising around what's wrong with capitalism. That is capitalism the promotion of endless profits, endless extraction of resources, endless processing of those resources and uh, creation of toxic waste, whether that's CO2 emissions or other forms of toxic waste. Um, we cannot keep doing this. And I think that more and more people are becoming conscious that that this system is working towards oppression and destruction. You so know, I find optimism in pessimism. <laughs> Sometimes my mom has, she has a way of seeing things, you know. My father was murdered during the war, and she always says, you know, um, sometimes we get used to the dark, and that can be a terrifying thing. But then something happens, and we realize that we can see in the dark. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and to me, that scene in the dark means being able to keep the light of what it is we are working towards, despite the setbacks, despite the evidence in front of us that we are being under attack. Without community, you know, we lose our immunity to challenges, you know, to um, be rooted and to know... Um, to know that there are things worth fighting for. There are things worth, you know, struggling and organizing and, you know, dedicating time to. And to me, that, that, that means a world where everyone can be visible, heard, and, you know, and everyone can be valued. And so that's the world that I see my union, you know, working towards. And I, I'm willing to put the time to... To make that happen, um, how can people access your work? You write beautifully about the lost histories, the you know of Latin America. You write about undocumented and the connection between you know labeling someone undocumented or illegal, as you know has been done in the past, and the way that those rights uh, go along with that. Um, how can people learn more about your work and, and, and how to connect with you? So um, our book, um, which I co-edited with my colleague Steve Striffler on um, Organizing for Power, um, Labor in 21st Century Boston, is going to be available in April from Haymarket Press. And I have another book coming out in April with Beacon Press um, called uh, Central America's Forgotten History. Um, revolution, violence, and the roots of migration. And my immigration books that you mentioned are also available from Beacon Press. And I urge people, these are both independent presses, and I urge people to go directly to the publishers rather than using Amazon.com because these are progressive publishing houses that really rely on um, 
on their book sales. And if you buy it through Amazon, Amazon gets most of the money. So support your independent publishers rather than the uh, multinational that's swallowing us all up. That's Haymarket Press and Beacon Press. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for all the ways that you continue to inspire us to look at the darkness and be inspired by it. Be inspired to move. Be inspired to create something else. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an education consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.